0: Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Maron with Strong Towns. Uh, This week on the podcast, I'm going to be sharing uh, an interview I did with a a radio show in Cleveland, Ohio, called The Outspoken Cyclist. Uh, It was a a really good interview. I enjoyed it a lot. We had a nice conversation, and I think you'll get something out of it. Uh, This has been kind of an odd week for me. I actually changed my hard drive out uh, over the last weekend, kind of calling on some tech skills that I haven't used for a long, long time. Uh, everything has gone really well, uh, this week. I thought I had all the files transferred over and everything taken care of. Uh, and then I got to Thursday and found out that, uh, not only did I not have my podcasting files, I can't find them anywhere. And, uh, the podcasting software that I've been using is not, uh, is not working on this computer. So things may sound, uh, just a touch different this week, uh, Hang with me and I'll see uh, if I can get back to the same old familiar sound you have uh, had for months here on the Strong Towns podcast. Either way, uh, thanks for hanging with us. Uh, Thanks for uh, listening and enjoy the podcast this week, everyone. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns.
1: We're back on The Outspoken Cyclist, and we're going to head right on over to Plainfield, Minnesota and talk with engineer Chuck Marone about strong towns. Chuck, thanks for joining me on the show this evening.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I learned about you and your work from an article by Sarah Goodyear for the Atlantic Cities Online. The title of the article, What Happens When a Town Puts People Before Cars, um, you say that your work, your profession has gotten it all wrong when it comes to building cities and towns, and that just sparked my interest. Um, Also, having spent the last 15 years with an engineer, uh, I was interested in your article, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So so can we begin at the beginning, and you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your work up until you had this revelation about what you were doing?
2: Sure. I, I, I... Got an undergraduate degree in civil engineering back in 1995, wow, and uh, worked then for half a dozen years as, a, as an engineer. I worked a little bit at MnDOT, uh, the DOT here in Minnesota. I worked at a private consulting firm uh, doing municipal-style engineering, sewer and water extensions, road, street projects, that type of thing. Uh, and I, I went back to college after half a dozen years to get an urban planning degree. Uh, there were, I, I wasn't, I'm not saying I was a bad engineer, but, you know, an engineer is like, there's a certain kind of your brain that, that does engineering. And I, I was not the uh, the facts and figures and data, number crunching kind of engineer. I was really more of a, uh, I found myself kind of navigating to the project management side of things. And that requires kind of a bigger picture mind. And I I just thought that I was lacking some skills. Uh, there were a lot of things that I didn't grasp and didn't understand that I thought would be augmented by having that urban planning degree. So I went back to school, and that really kind of changed things dramatically. I mean, you, you really are exercising a very different part of your intellect when you get a planning degree than an engineering degree. And wound up just uh, through this process kind of questioning a number of the things that were just core assumptions for me as an engineer. I worked for a number of years then, uh, running my own planning company here in Minnesota, working with small towns and medium sized cities around the state, doing engineering planning kind of integrated type of work in two thousand and eight. I started a blog that became the Strong Towns blog and the article you're you're speaking about I uh, published about a year in after I'd had a week of just frustrating conversations with both engineers and planners about a number of projects, and I sat down, and uh, in the course of really about 45 minutes is a pretty quick piece, just kind of poured out the things that I was most frustrated about with the profession that I was a, a part of. Uh, that is the most widely read piece on our blog ever. Uh, it's been downloaded you know I, 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 a couple hundred thousand times at least Wow. And, yeah, it's, you know, I've seen it show up in different books. I've seen it show up in college uh, prep material uh, for different courses. And so I'm really proud of the fact that this kind of, I think the major insight of the article was that when engineers look at things and evaluate space, they're starting with a different set of assumptions than what the public does. And even though the engineering profession Uh, and the public are saying the same words, the words mean different things. Uh, When an engineer looks at a street and they talk about safety, uh, they're actually saying something quite different than what you and I would think when we think safety. Hmm. Uh, They're saying, well, given the design speed, the speed at which the traffic must travel, and given the volume that is projected for the specific street, uh, how do we design the safest street possible? And once we do that, how do we then make it affordable? How do we reduce costs as much as we can? That's a very logical approach to an engineer. When the public looks at a street and they think safety, the first thing they think is, how do we have safety over everything else? And once we have a safe street, uh, how do we make it uh, affordable and cost-effective? Once we have it safe and cost-effective, how much traffic can we accommodate and at what speed? And it is a reversal of what just the standard engineering kind of uh, siloed uh, approach is. Uh, And it, it has had a fundamental impact on, you know, negative impact on the way we've built and designed our cities.
1: Well, you do say that um, roadway standards have been adopted almost universally and are utterly shameful in reality. So tell us what the the actual thinking on the engineering, civil engineering uh, side is in terms of the how streets have been built up till now.
2: It, yes, the engineering profession is full of really good people. And I've, I've, I've met really nothing but conscientious, decent people who believe they're doing the best for society. Of course. But if you go back to the early highway building days, we had no clue what we were doing. I mean, the the traffic engineering profession is very young. Uh, We went out and started building highways, and all of a sudden, all these people were dying in these terrible accidents. And we stepped back, and we asked ourselves some difficult questions. And we realized that when, when we didn't build highways... Uh, straight and wide and have wide shoulders and wide recovery zones, uh, people got in accidents and they died. And we came up with this concept called forgiving design. The idea is that you forgive the driver for their mistake. If they accidentally look uh, you know, in the back seat to check on their kid or they look down to change the radio station and they happen to drift a little bit, you don't want that to be a fatal uh, accident. You, you want them to have the ability to recover from that. And so we started to build highways with forgiving design standards. And the federal government, which was managing a lot of the the funding, uh, still is, set up these standards that states then adapted and adopted locally. And what you had was a proliferation of safety enhancement as it related to highways. The problem is twofold. One, there was no, for many, many decades, there was no equivalent standard at the local level. And so engineers would apply what they saw worked in other places, which is essentially highway standards, to local streets. The second problem, which is even a little bit more insidious, is that a lot of the local streets were funded by federal dollars, and still are, uh, federal and state uh, dollars coming through the gas tax fund. And when those dollars are allocated in order to ensure that it's a good investment, there's standards that go with that. In Minnesota, they're called state aid standards. They they're different, have different monikers around the country, but essentially it is highway-level design standards that are forced on uh, local units of government. There's uh, people underway and, and engineers working within the profession that are trying to change this. Uh, the Institute of Traffic Engineers has done some really good work, uh, but it, it's, it is an uphill battle because every city around the country has kind of dogmatically, as part of instituting these programs over the years, uh, put into place highway standards for local streets. And we literally have to go in, take all of those out, uh, and change them out. And from a professional liability standpoint, it freaks engineers out uh, from a you know kind of turning your back and acknowledging that maybe what you've done the last two or three decades has not been the best, Uh, is a really challenging thing from just a humility standpoint. So we've got a big task in front of us to change the profession uh, so that we can start building better places.
1: So if we look at what the standards have been till now, and it's wide streets, uh, clear sight lines, higher speed, the obvious other way of looking at it is, I read what you said, trees, people want trees in their yard, so don't cut down the trees. They want narrower streets. They want slower speeds. And we've taken some of the beauty out of driving through your city. And you've got a lot of stuff. I need to tell people, first of all, that we're speaking with Chuck Marone, and he is the head of uh, an organization called StrongTowns.org, and it's a fascinating website. If you really want some information... What have we said about cycling so far? Nothing. But you're going to see how it all ties in as we get further down down the uh, the road here, so to speak. So let's talk about strong towns. Your revelation that, that these old standards weren't going to work in today's world if we wanted people to, to live in communities that we want to live in, assuming that we do, um, don't any longer work. What is a strong town? What, what exactly are you defining as a strong town now?
2: That, that's a really good question. Uh, we've actually, from, and this is maybe falling back a little bit on my engineering uh, bias, uh, we've actually said, you know, we can measure what a strong town is, and we've came up with a few metrics. The most important one is a place that has the capacity to sustain itself over the long term financially. In other words, when you do a project, when you have a a road or a street or a sewer pipe or a water tower or whatever, the tax base and the revenue streams that are associated with your community are sufficient enough to sustain that. One of the things that I found as an engineer very early on, and this is one of the things that perplexed me, is that we were doing these projects uh, where you know, the costs would either get paid by the federal or state government. A developer would come in and pay the costs, and then roll that over into people's home mortgages when they sold the properties. But it was looking at the costs that were associated and then looking at the tax revenues that the city was getting. And just doing simple math was realizing that the city was getting only a fraction of the money they needed in order to sustain all of this stuff. If you have a hundred foot lot in a city, uh, you've got $50,000 worth of infrastructure in front of your house. If you have a house across the street, half of that is yours. That's twenty-five grand. That means you should be paying at least $1,000 a year in taxes just to maintain the stuff in front of your house. That doesn't count your share of the water tower, the lift pumps, the treatment plant, You know, all of the other kind of common stuff. Well, nobody's paying anywhere near that in any of our cities. So the cities so- are
1: basically losing money.
2: Every transaction they do, they lose money. And, and that's the key understanding. The, the thing that goes with that, though, is that when the government comes in at the federal or state level, or when a developer comes in and invests money in the city and builds the infrastructure, for the city, the initial upfront costs are very nominal. But all of a sudden, they have all this growth and tax base. It creates what we call at Strong Towns the illusion of wealth. The city feels rich because they're getting money coming in. They don't have any obligations due for a generation. But when those obligations come due in a generation, uh, there's no money to pay for them. We're now two generations into this approach. Literally every city around the country is financially insolvent if they put their balance sheet together because they've done 60 years of very, very unproductive growth, growth that gives you the illusion of wealth, but ultimately costs you more than what you've gained cumulatively in revenue.
1: You say that you must have sufficient age diversity so that population will be added at a rate greater than the population is being lost. Now, we're here in northeast Ohio. Cleveland was at one time an enormously large, productive, now, of course, Rust Belt City. And as all of the population has fled to the suburbs, even the suburbs are suffering right now. So, I guess my question is, how are you going to get these people either to come back into the city and invest in it, or, you know, people are having fewer children. What's going to make a change it back into strong towns?
2: I think that a change is happening, whether we want it to or not. Okay. Uh, in the sense that, you know, when when we're talking about the the urban-suburban type of interrelationship, as in a Cleveland. Uh, What we're seeing in cities like that is that there's a natural migration taking place now anyway. Uh, The the two core demographics that are in the home purchasing realm or in the the, the people who are moving today uh, are retirees and near-retirees and millennials. Right, and both of those subsets of people do not want four-bedroom, three-car garage homes with large mortgages out in the suburbs and the exurbs. So there's a there's a market uh, kind of going on right now that is is changing that. The other thing is that suburban life, uh, when it was first kind of sold to us as Americans, was a shiny and new, uh, and B supposed to provide all of this kind of freedom and flexibility. That you didn't have in the old urban neighborhoods, like what? Uh, well, you had your own yard. Oh, well, true. Uh, you could drive wherever you wanted to. You could, uh, you know, you didn't have to wait for the streetcar line. You didn't have to walk. You could get in your car and go whenever you wanted to, wherever you wanted to. Uh, that promise or that kind of allure um, may have been real for a while, but it, it's not. It, it, it's not a situation we're able to to sustain. Financially, you know, you've got congestion now uh, because you know when we move everybody out, now all of a sudden everybody drives in, and you've got all this congestion. So you can't just get in your car and drive wherever you want to, whenever you want to. Uh, gas is three seventy a gallon here in Minnesota. Uh, that's not a, a price point that allows you to you know live a life of luxury uh, where you can just drive wherever you want without any consequence. Uh, so. You know the the allure of this lifestyle uh, is just simply not there, and, and there is a market shift responding to that right now. Now, the federal and state governments are continue to subsidize the suburban development pattern, continue to uh, subsidize automobile. You've got home mortgage interest deductions that subsidize single family homes, but don't do anything for rental properties uh, or you know condominium type units that that people would live. In more urban areas, so you still have the old system set up to perpetuate growth in this old model. Once that changes, uh, which I think it will, uh, there's you know there's going to be very little holding back. I-, I think a reverse, a reverse of what we called white flight for uh, two decades. Uh, I think that you will see a reverse of people uh, migrating back into urban areas.
1: I'm talking with Chuck Marone. He is the head of StrongTowns.org. Uh, you're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. Let's talk about what kind of changes we need to make to rebuild our towns, make them strong, when you know, it comes down to money. Um, we're building this super Walmart and it, that was fought tooth and nail but passed anyway on the idea that, oh, new jobs. But really, going back into the city might create more jobs, Yes.
2: This is what's fascinating, uh, is that we have the value equation of how to create wealth and prosperity and jobs just completely backward. (laughs) Uh, When you look at Walmart, uh, you're looking at a place that employs a a lot of people, uh, has a lot of value, and pays a lot of tax. But you have to look at it as a city. You have to look at the total return on investment, because Walmart also costs a ton to serve. Walmart also takes up a lot of utilities, and Walmart also displaces a lot of your other businesses right we 've studied this around the country in places and we'll go and we'll show a city you know you 've got this walmart it 's worth ten million dollars, it employs four hundred people uh, here 's the, the the neglected part of your city, the part of the city that you uh, totally discount the the pawn shops, the liquor stores, the tattoo parlors you know the the, 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 the place that They used to be the retail stores, but the retail's gone, and so now these kind of lower-value uses have come in. And and the city doesn't like them and despises them. But you start to analyze them and look, and on a per-foot tax basis, they're paying more taxes. The the properties are actually worth more. They employ more people, and they have more individual small business owners. It, It is a... I like to explain it like this. If if you look back through history at the way we built cities, we built them around people who walked. And the technology for doing that was not some grand theory about how we were going to get rich. It was not some uh, intellectual pursuit about, you know, here's how we create growth and prosperity. It was literally a pattern and an approach to development that evolved by trial and error over thousands and thousands of years. You can look at ancient Rome, you can look at ancient Greece, you can go to the ancient cities of Asia, South America, North America, and they have a layout and design very similar to what we were building 100 years ago. Different materials, yes, but the idea that you would build a place around people who walked, there was a a way to do that that was successful. These were places that created a lot of wealth and prosperity. They had to, otherwise they wouldn't have survived. What we have been doing the last 60 years uh, is, you know, a, a huge experiment. It is some ideas based on some very intelligent people, uh, you know, Ebenezer Howard, uh, Le Corbusier, the, the the whole intellectual movement to rebuild cities around the automobile was done by very bright people. But that doesn't change the fact that it's never been done anywhere before. And we're living through this big social, cultural, financial experiment, and it's not going well. It's not working out the way everybody thought it would.
1: That is so true. Okay, we, we emphasize funding coming back to the local level. Yeah. How do you convince a town council or a mayor or even the citizens that investment of already what we would term now scarce dollars needs to be directed away from roads and bridges and people like Walmart, who, by the way, seem to get huge tax abatements when oh, they okay. move into a place.
2: Yeah, that, that's really the tragic part. Um, it, the way you do it is you start talking about an actual return on investment. How much money do we spend versus how much do we get back? You could look at two companies and say, well, here's a company that makes a million dollars of, sells a million dollars worth of stuff a year. And here's another company that sells a hundred thousand. Which one would you rather have as a city? Well, we'd rather have the one that sells a million, right? But what if the one that sells you a million costs you two million? And the one that sells you a hundred thousand only costs you fifty thousand? Well, you'd much rather have the smaller one because you're making money, not losing money. Right. If cities actually did that analysis, what they would find is that, uh, doing things like adding bike lanes so that people have an option, Uh, If you can make it so a family doesn't have to have two cars, but can actually get by with one car and can bike and walk to places uh, when they're not using their car, all of a sudden you've added literally $120,000 worth of purchasing power for them when they go to get a mortgage. Well, in a lot of our neighborhoods, and I, I don't know the Cleveland market real well, but I'm guessing that in Cleveland, you can get some houses for $120,000.
1: Oh, actually, you can get a heck of a nice house in Cleveland. The the housing market here, the stock is excellent.
2: So what we're talking about is not finding new money. Uh, You know, we, we, We become so obsessed with new sources of revenue and how do we get new money to come in. What we're really talking about is displacing the money that we're literally throwing away today and putting it into more productive uses. If you're a city, would you rather have uh, that you know, $9,000 a year that the family spends on a car go for gas, oil, insurance, car payment, and, and, and all of these things that are outside of your city, essentially you're exporting these dollars, or would you rather have it go into their mortgage, uh, into their community, into a local business? Uh, we're not talking about finding new money. We're just talking about being smarter with the money that we have.
1: So – to wrap up what we've been talking about, do you see places where these changes are occurring, and do they give you encouragement for the future of strong towns?
2: Yes, uh, but but just brutally slow right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, we, we have uh, immense capacity to delude ourselves, uh, and we've had you know we've had a really good run in this country. Uh, we've been able to, with the systems that we've set up, create an illusion of wealth for us that we've largely bought into. And so when things are trying to change, when the underlying economy is trying to transform into something else, and we come in and rescue it, uh, whether it is through you know, local subsidies for that new Walmart or whether it's a federal stimulus program that uh, you know, allows us to forestall any serious changes – Uh, It it puts us back. We really need to get serious about evaluating our local economies, making them financially prudent and financially strong. And if we do that, it will change the emphasis uh, from the low-return auto-based investments to the high-return walkable, bikeable, livable-type investments that are going to make our communities financially viable.
1: So tell us a little bit about Strong Towns, and there's a, there are a lot of resources on your website that people could look to to maybe go back to city councils or uh, mayors or uh, city managers and talk to them about some of these things. Tell us a little bit about Strong Towns itself, the, the website and the resources.
2: Strong Towns began as a blog, and I was really just writing uh, to try to help myself figure some things out. Uh, and... After a year, a friend of mine said, "You know, you've got some really good stuff here. We should start a nonprofit." And I said, "Well, go ahead." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't have the time to do that stuff. Uh, you know, a year and a half later, I'm running a nonprofit based on these ideas. We do a blog, uh, we do a podcast, we have a TV channel. Uh, we really do a lot when it comes to communications to try to help just the ordinary citizen, the ordinary resident wants to step up and take ownership of their community uh, give them an alternative narrative that they can discuss with their city council members with their neighbors with their business community uh, that's really what our focus has been i've spent the last two years traveling around the country giving talks meeting with neighborhood groups uh, we're, we're entering this very interesting phase of our organization uh, because we've evolved now a little bit beyond just the messaging, and we're actually starting to get into the, the, the community organization type of work. Uh, that's something that we've just started to dabble in. We, we've got a project here in my hometown that we've called a Better Brainerd, and I was actually out this morning at 5 a.m. Uh, with a chalker, one of the, uh, the things that you chalk a baseline with right. on a baseball field. Uh-huh. Uh, we were putting in bike lanes on a street because we're doing a speed study. And you guys will be happy to know I got the results in. And when we put in bike lanes along this street and narrowed the lanes with chalk, we lowered the speed by 30%. Uh, It's right in a school zone. uh, And, you know, these are the kind of things that we're piloting here that we're trying to export and teach other people around the country to be able to go out and do and how to kind of – make those really strong arguments uh, for for changes.
1: Well, I think you are in the right place at the right time, certainly from uh, our perspective here at the Outspoken Cyclist and most of the people who listen and who are involved in bicycle and pedestrian advocacy. So um, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me this afternoon. It's Chuck Marone. He's the head of StrongTowns.org, and I'm going to keep watching what you're doing because I like it. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much. I really All right. appreciate
1: it. Have a great afternoon.
2: You too. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.